I started that business with like a hundred bucks and no knowledge. I wired the office by myself. <laughs> my, my dad came and volunteered. Did I ever tell you a story? He came to volunteer for the Tribeca Film Festival year, first year. And for five years, people thought he owned the company and asked for Jim Dalzell. I mean, you know, it's just, you just keep going. Like, I don't but see, know. see, that is like, <laughs> people want to do that, but they don't have the guts. And they don't but, think it's possible. But they there think is that, possible. I know. And you're a great example of why you're here today, my yeah. friend. How do you produce innovation? How do you produce anything? It's always been about reinventing a form. I think we're all in this room together because we believe in lifelong learning. It's all about persistence. If you give up, that's the end of the game. You have no chance. I wanted to go make my own mistakes in pursuit of, I didn't even know what at the time. Show up. Show up when you fail. Show up when you fail miserably. Show up when you don't want to show up. There's an audacity that I think is required to, to be a creator. Just start. Like, don't wait for permission. Sit down at the table with some of the great creators. Some of the people who have cut new ground and found a new path and done things that are like improbable and ludicrous and wonderful and for which we should all be grateful in the worlds of art and theater and music and technology and innovation. This is You're listening to Producing Innovation. All right, let's do this before I chicken ready to out. Go? Before I'm we... out, before I'm out of here. Before we go, we're um, All right, so episode five, Producing Innovation. We're here with Karen Dalzell, um, someone I've known for a long time, someone who was really instrumental um, and helpful and supportive and a collaborator and a producer of the highest order in my early career. Um, one of the few, one of the first people who, like, I don't know, I think gave me a lot of confidence by her faith in what I was doing. Um, and since then is someone who has run uh, a top New York-based uh, event production company, um, produced many of the top sort of, you know, events, award shows, parties, early Tribeca Film Festival, all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and the reason I really wanted to have you on the, the podcast was because in the, I'd say you're in, like, the top three people who always – like, I always look to you, like, to what's going on? What do I not know about yet that I should know about? Like, what's some cool shit that's happening in New York? Or who's someone doing something interesting? Um, and I always pay attention to that. And every, and whenever I see you at an event that I'm at and you're there, I'm like, oh, this is a cool event. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, so we'll start with, simply... Um, how did you start producing and why? And like, what, what, give us some of your path, the backstory. How did Karen Dalzell get to here from there? Well, I was a horrible actress, so my loud voice just did not have any emotion. <laughs> so I, I realized like that wasn't really going to happen for me. I didn't really try to be an actress. So I was involved in theater in college, and it was fun, but I was like stage managing and doing this and that. And then I sort of started producing for this theater and doing little shows, and that was pretty fun. It was pretty interesting. No one believed it was a job because I was in Anakinish, Nova Scotia, which is the middle of nowhere for any of you who know where Nova Scotia is. It's very far from New York City where I'm currently sitting. Um, and uh, I started producing shows. We did really well, and then uh, I thought, well, this might be something I could do. Um, and that's what I started to do 
do. I started doing little, you know, one-act plays, little theater shows here, there, and everywhere around Nova Scotia. I started a festival, my very first festival. I've done many festivals since then, but was in Nova Scotia in Antigonish, and it's a theater festival that is still happening to this day. If you can, you, you didn't even know that, no, did you? Awesome. Yeah, it's on the very old days. Um, but my skill set seemed to be more on the organizational side rather than the performance and and has remained there ever since but I'm really not a front of house or front of stage kind of person and I prefer to do the work necessary to get a show off the ground and make it happen and work with artists and interesting characters and make that all sort of happen um, and then I moved to New York through various stages of my life there was a, another festival in the middle there I, I produced a jazz festival in Ottawa for five years. And that was my really first like major, 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 you know, gig. And I only got the job because no one else wanted it because they paid so badly and no one else would take the job. So they gave up and just gave it to me because I persisted. I was like, this is the job I want. I really want this job. I'm going to get this job. And they gave up because I was so dogged in my determination. And I did that and I learned everything about really about producing there. I know we've actually been talking about having Annie Hamburger on Right, she was my first job in New York City. No, and, and Annie, we've talked about Annie a bit. She and, should definitely be here. Yeah, no, she's, she's, she's um, a site-specific producer of, of the highest order. And, um, and tell, tell us about your experience with her. What was that? What drew you to her and how well, did you... I had a, I've had a few husbands, but my first husband um, got a job in New York, and he, I mean, and he's from Ottawa. So it took him a really long time to end up in New York, but I got here right away because I was like, oh, New York, that sounds way better than Ottawa. And I, and I, Annie put an ad in the newspaper, just reflect back now, <laughs> <laughs> reflect back to the time where that existed. And I saw this ad in the newspaper and they're, you know, looking for a producer for this site-specific theater. I didn't know what any of those words meant, like site-specific theater. I was like, no idea. But I sent her a resume and phoned her and she said, why don't you come and meet with me? And I'm like, yeah. So I flew to New York and met with Annie Hamburger and she's like, you're hired. I'm like, when do you need me to start? And she's like, tomorrow. I'm like, fantastic. So I just packed everything up and drove my car immediately to New York City and started working with her. And that was a really life-changing opportunity. I mean, sites, I mean, I drove around finding diesel fuel for generators in a city I'd never been in. I had my car stolen. I didn't know anything and then I knew everything. I mean, about how to shut down a street or get the government to give you things when they don't want to or find a building that's empty and fill it full, full of artists, you know, that kind of stuff that I have used every single day in my professional life ever since, every single day. Well, those, I, I've always been odd because I was doing sort of my own version mm -hmm. out in the world of, of site-specific theater, mm -hmm. not so much in New York initially, in like those early 90s, kind mm -hmm. of that era. And and it was like, I, I just think about you guys doing those shows in New York and like, I was just always so odd because the, 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 the main characteristic of, a, of the great producers that I've ever met are the ones who, when you say, hey, I want to do this, like when, it was, when I was at Lincoln Center, I was like, I want a projection screen that'll burst into flames at the end of the video. And they were like, all right, we're going to figure out how to do that. They, they almost took it as like a, yeah. like, like a challenge, like how are you going to figure this out? And some producers like, uh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Those are not the producers to work with. It's the ones. And I just imagine like some of the things that I know were asked of you guys by the likes of Reza Abdo and and, and Bogart and people in those early days. Yeah, it was crazy. What, like, what were some of the crazy 
Well, just shutting down full streets or taking over the pier Orestes was on, which really did not look safe. I am I really, really unclear why they even allowed it. Like, really, I'm like, if that guy stands just one foot to the left, that he's going in, the whole thing's <laughs> collapsing. It's going to be a major, major catastrophe is going to happen here. Um, and, you know, convincing the Masons to let us do a show in the Masonic Temple on 23rd Street. I mean, it was really a strange place. And we were there like on a 24-hour show and it was just quite incredible. I mean, you know, it, it was really Annie. Annie's just doesn't take no for an answer. And I really learned that is the key to success. I mean, one of the most important rules is no is not really an option. I mean, if you really want to have something creative done, you're going to have to figure out how to get a yes. And that sometimes is, takes a while, and the yes is sort of a soft yes <laughs> or a soft no, one of those things. But you can usually, you know, work around that. A soft no sounds a lot like a yes to me most of the time. Um, so we, we, you can find a way to get almost any, any, anything done. But, yeah, I mean, shutting down, you know, Wall Street. I mean, I've shut down Wall Street more than once. I had a, did a parade on. Were you involved in that parade, that Dutch parade on Wall Street, like actual Wall Street? I mean, it was bananas. I don't even remember when who that was for. That was for some corporation. Because if you're going to do like experimental theatrical performances in New York City, you actually need to do commercial work in order to eat, at least in the early days. Because <laughs> like, wow, I, these people will hire me to make a parade on Wall Street and pay me. Sign me up. So yeah, that's when I started doing commercial work too. What what is it? Because it, it's in a way, it's like I, I think I sometimes think of myself as like a glutton for punishment. Like what what like what is it in you? But what do you think more generally? Like what is it that draws people like us to 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 hear a challenge and to say yes to to persist through absurd obstacles? Because you want to put interesting work out. I mean. There's lots of black box theaters with prosceniums and great little shows out there. There's lots and lots of those, and I love those, and I'm happy for those, and I'm glad that there's playwrights and plays and all of it, but I can barely sit still in a chair most of the time, and I feel like I want to put out work that people can enjoy, that they're moving around, that they're seeing different perspectives that they're seeing artists they would never see before. I mean, people are still talking about that. I know that I brought to shows at Gail Gates. Like, they just, they couldn't quite believe They couldn't quite believe it, Michael. I mean, your shows were so incredible, and people were just so thrilled to be in an experience where they're moving around and seeing theater or performance in that kind of way. I mean, I feel like it's done more now, but you and Annie and a few of the... Others were so, you know, uh, Anita, and, and they were all on the early side of this incredible sort of wave of, I mean, I guess it's experiential now. I guess it was site-specific then, immersive. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a little more common or a little more uh, accepted now, I think, mm, you know. Um, and people want experiences, and I would like to be able to give people experience, real experiences, Sometimes their experiences paid for by a commercial entity, and sometimes they're pure art experiences. And I think that's why you just keep going because you want people to see 
you or other artists that you know or, you know, a guy lit on fire and, like, in a cool way and you just want to, you know, I mean, (laughs) I love some of that stuff. I'm like, all right, sure, you want to be lit on fire in an enclosed space. Let's do it. You know, yes, yes is the answer. I want people to see some of that stuff. What what do you see happening in art and theater and entertainment and any and just even as a consumer? And I, we we've talked about this a bit in in other podcasts. Is something that we're as a team kind of focused on. Is like, what are interesting things that are happening out there in the world today that 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 make you excited? That are the things that you want to go do and you and your take your kids to go. Oh, you got to check this out. You know, are there any things that are standing out for you? A lot of it is visual these days for me. It's just mm-hmm. Because I, you know, I've, I've taken my kids recently to a few um, experimental pieces that were horrible. And just now they're old enough to start laughing. And then I'm just, this is I'm so awkward. I, you know, so, and I understand because sometimes they are really bad. And I often go to bad stuff because I want to see what people are trying to do. Or because sometimes bad stuff turns into incredible stuff. But there's a process, and sometimes you're at it at the point where it's not that good. And I've taken the kids, and they start laughing, and I'm like, I can't, I can't cope with that. So, um, so visual art. I'm still. I'm going to a lot of visual art. I'm going to a lot of sports. Like I am mad for Serena Williams, for example. Like she's not an artist, but to me, like this is a hugely powerful human being who is changing sports forever, and I want my family to see a person like that and see her play and see her get really pissed off. Like, I just, like, she really, like, moves me like that. So that's nothing to do with art at all, but has to do with, like, wow, that's a powerful emotion here in an arena with all of these people. Like, she's someone who I've been really, like, really into lately, and I'm not really a sports fanatic, um, but she's someone I'm interested in. In terms of... I haven't seen a lot of theater lately. I've seen a few Broadway things just because I'm really just struggling with it. <laughs> I'm struggling with it. I struggle with sitting in a chair for four hours or three and a half hours without an intermission or whatever. You know, I just, I'm like, I can't. I can't do it. Like, this is really, I can't do it. I like music. I like musical things. Not actual Broadway musicals, which I also like, but I like going to see music because also you can wander around. Like, see a cool band, mm-hmm. you know. For, for me right now, I'm very restless, I think. And I think people are restless. I think audiences are restless. I think they have been for a long time. And it's hard to focus. And you want to be able to control your narrative somehow. Like, I'd like to go here and do that at this time and then go over there and do that, at, even if I'm in the same space, and see the story in my own way. So I like that kind of thing these days. So it sounds like you do many different types of events and productions. Um, do you find that you have a process that is applied commonly to all of them, or are there things that you do uniquely to, to some and not others? <laughs> um, I'm not sure it changes totally from project to project. I mean, I'm very, I'm just, a, I'm, I'm both a thoughtful planner and a wildly instinctive (laughs) um, person. So I combine both of those pieces almost every project. So, you know, 
I really care about, in the end, the production meeting where I actually know where every human's going to be standing for every piece of every puzzle. Like, I care about that, that matrix. But before I get to any of that, I'm really like, what's, what's the point of all this? And what are we doing? And like, how do we have a real audience experience that's totally dope? So I do all of this sort of thinking and planning on a big scale. And then it just, I bring it down each time. But it always starts with like that kernel of really cool thing. And Michael, who's, you know, in more of the creative realm, I've also ended up having to do a lot of the creative work because, you know, I'm working with, organizations or clients who really just have no idea and so I end up doing all both sides of the the, the coin like what are we going to do who what are we talking about what you know who's on stage what what like what is this summit about what is this show about I mean I do both of those things so for me it's much more fun to work on both sides and not just production because I mean production is fine you know but it's a it's a pure process, and and, it, and without the actual artist and artistic or creative side, then it's really, it's empty, very empty for, I guess, for everyone. But my, my process is, like, what are we doing? And then I really bust out, like, the, the logical pieces to get there. And I work with, lo I, I like to work with lots of people and give them a lot of responsibility, because... I really, I just, people can do a lot and I don't need to do everything, like, you know, and I've never wanted to do everything. What do you think, I mean, again, what, one of the things that, that this whole sort of podcast is endeavoring to do is to share insights, share the experiences that, the, the lessons that, that people like you and I have learned as a result of just being further down the road and having fought through some really difficult situations and everyone that I'm you know, interviewing and bringing on or like people whose work I admire or people who I've worked with or people who I know have like had, you know, both big successes and catastrophic failures because those are the way lessons get learned. You know, the, the things that I ended up learning as a young producer and as a young creator, like they weren't teaching me at, at school or like anything close. I don't close. think anyone like, can teach it at e school. Exactly. I'm sorry to say. And that's why I think podcasts to me at least have such a, relevance because it's like you're just getting access through this sort of efficient means of sharing with people and conversations and thoughts and insights that you couldn't otherwise get. So my question to you with that in mind is like, what do you think stands in the way of of people making things happen, of, of, of having, making, you know, ideas, creative dreams, whatever, happen like what are the things that held you back if they if you were ever held back what are the things that you see other creative people and you've worked with many struggle with um fear holds people back everyone's afraid it's, you know things are hard to do they're scary you're gonna make a fool of yourself guaranteed <laughs> i mean it's just it happens um I mean, I certainly have m m made some great strides and done some great things and also made a complete idiot of myself on many, many occasions, and that's okay. I live through it, and people live through it. I mean, I know when I was, you know, for me, starting my own business was like a way to overcome some of that. Like, I wasn't waiting for someone to hire me or or give me opportunities, I was like, well, okay, I'm quite good at this. I'm just going to give myself the opportunities, I mean, which I, which I did. You know, I think, I don't know the saying, if you don't like the road you're on, pave, an, pave another one. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I would I started my own business and that was wonderful to do. And, you know, for me, the actual running of the business was kind of a great joy. I mean, I really liked I liked doing it and I loved bringing on young producers. And I brought on many women producers who knew nothing. I mean, they certainly weren't producers when they started. They were people who wanted to do events. Like, that's sort of what they knew. Like, they're like, oh, I want to do events. And I bring them on. They wouldn't know anything. And that was fantastic because then they would, I could teach them how to do things the way I wanted them done. And I definitely had a sort of a semi-sink or swim policy. I thought, you know, either you can figure it out and I'm going to give you a show. Like, a, it might be like one piece of Tribeca Film Festival, like Run the Green Room or something. And if you make it, you're going to get to do a bunch of, bunch of stuff. If you can handle that, like, which is going to have 5,000 moving pieces and a lot of grumpy people, then you're going to be able to do these 10 other things. And they would, and they would all rise up. And, you know, a lot of these young women are all producers now, have their own businesses or run big shows or major, major players in the business. So I think creating your own opportunity um, is something critical to do. And I think lots of artists do that. I mean, they do sometimes then create their own opportunity and get a little stuck. But I think that's, that's when the dogged determination comes in. What were some of the things like when you when a new, you know, prospect assistant <laughs> came, walked into your office yeah. and with, with you know e- eager to go? What were some of the first things that you would share with them or look for or, or, or try and you know nurture or, or 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 steer them away from? I'm sure that this is against all HR rules in the world, right? <laughs> I mean, my my rule my my process was <laughs> very loose. I you know I'd be like, what's happening now? And how many shows do we have? And what are we producing? And I'm like. You know, can they figure it out quickly, you know, because sometimes we'd be hiring like 30 people because we'd have so much happening. So I'd be like, can they figure stuff out quickly? Can they learn to speak up? Because as we've been sort of joking about, there are many problems or mistakes that happen in producing. And the way for a senior producer, an executive to... mm, keep everyone safe and the project moving forward is the young people working for you are able to say, you know what? I just really screwed this up. Like, you know, I sent out 500,000 invites at the wrong date, whatever, whatever the, <laughs> whatever the problem of the second is. And if you know that, as soon as it happens, then you can protect that person, protect the project and make things sort of get sorted, you know, deal with the client, deal with, you know, just deal with it, like, and protect your, your staff and help them. But if you don't know about it, then, you know, 500,000 people are showing up on the wrong date at your project. I mean, just like things really spiral badly out of control. So you want the kind of people that can fess up to that or feel like they can speak to you about it. And people were scared of me a little bit, you know, so the people that were able to like overcome that, like I can tell Karen that this these kinds of things are happening. And then fast learners. But, you know, often I had, like, you know, 20 people who had never produced a single event, and I would, like, I literally would just train them quickly, and and they would do great. So you were, um, tell, tell us your story with the Tribeca Film Festival. I know you produced a lot of the parties in the early years. There. Yeah, I, yeah. What, what was that like? Because that was a huge production that began at a very 
compelling time Very, in lower Manhattan. Yeah. And it was sort of a, a response in many ways it to was. what happened after 9-11. Absolutely. Just, what was that like? So I was producing a show called the Gotham Awards for the Independent Feature Project, which is a big award show, which I had done for many, many years. Um, and it's in September, and it was right after 9-11, and Robert De Niro was the uh was the was the honoree and he came and even though it was literally a week and a half or two weeks after 9-11 he came and did this this show and uh it was quite powerful and brought all the firemen and I got to meet him and his team and Jane Rosenthal and at that time they were coming up with an idea to start a new festival the Tribeca Film Festival and they phoned me and said do you want to come and produce all the events for this festival and I'm like yeah Okay, sounds great. So off I went. And they didn't know anything about producing a festival, and I knew something about it. But it was like very sort of bootstrappy there at the beginning. I mean, there was more money than there usually is. the The team got put together, and I was the sort of events person, and that meant, you know, handling like opening night with Nelson Mandela and, you know, an opening ceremony. I mean, just it was an incredible period. And everyone was there in order. The point of the festival at that time was to help revive Lower Manhattan because it was still struggling after 9-11. So there was a lot of emotion and and energy, like really, like really positive energy around the producing of the festival. I mean... We'd be like, we want to shut down the entire lower Manhattan. And everyone with the police are like, yes, fantastic idea. Let me help you. You know, like, so there was all of this, like, goodwill around around doing that. Um, and it was a great experience. I did it for eight, eight years. I produced all, you know, and it really evolved into a more traditional film festival, which is what it is now. But that first, I'd say the first five years were really maintain this revival of lower Manhattan positioning and... It really felt like a great thing to be doing, and it really, you know, was really a positive, positive thing to work on. And certainly, you know, I had, you know, got a lot of work from that because obviously I met a lot of people. Um, it was very time-consuming, but it was an incredible experience. And there were 100, each festival consisted of, I don't know, like 200 events or 300 events or... You know, like everything from green rooms to galas to award shows to opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies, parades, big parties, big, big, big parties. That's when I learned everyone wants to go to the VIP room and everyone is a friend of Robert De Niro. <laughs> everyone, by the way. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> because one of my favorite things to do at these big events sometimes, when I know it's all happening and working and... I like to work the door. Like, that's, like, the crisis point a lot of the times. Like, you know, okay, you've been through all of your setup and everything sounds working. Everything's working. You know it's working. I like to be at the door because that's when, like, complete meltdown happens. Like, I'm Robert De Niro's cousin. I'm like, mm-hmm. You, know, you know, and that person's taking the seat of, like, Michelle Obama. Like, and then it just trickles down, trickled down from there. Like, a disaster one, a disaster after the other because... You know, Robert De Niro's cousin is in there in Michelle Obama's seat. It's, you know, because the volunteer doesn't know, you know. What is the hardest, like, moment? What is the hardest moment in your career? What is the hardest production you ever produced or event? I don't know. Top three. The the year the power went out at the Fifi Awards was definitely one of my worst actual moments of, I mean, I think, I think Fergie was on stage singing, and I was just like, oh, my God. And the whole thing... The whole thing just stopped, and people were just 
There was just, I mean, I'm like, where's the backup power? That's not working either. I'm like, great. And then, like, the whole night just fell apart because it was a dinner. Think of the Golden Globes and the power went out. And then just chaos, chaos, because there was getting control back became almost impossible. It was really, and then it was talked about in the paper the next day, like, in women's wear daily. Fine. Um, but I was like, wow, this is super humiliating. Like, so, it was, those are the days it's really hard to get to work the next day because you just know how many people are going to be mad at you. But you just, you just gotta, just gotta suck it up and carry on. It really bites. It really, 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 really bites. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a ton of other stuff, but maybe it's so bad that I kind of black it out. (laughs) (laughs) I think the only way to really continue and make do and make continue working is not to dwell too long on the horrible things that happen. You want to learn from those mistakes. But if you dwell on them, you just can sink kind of low, and then you, it's very hard to like lift up and move forward. You know how those bad feelings, I they're, do the, they're the worst. You just have to carry, carry on. And I think having, like, uh, Michael knows a lot of the story, but having my business, where I trained a lot of incredible people, but then... Those incredible people became great producers and then lifted my clients. <laughs> so that was a little upsetting. You know, having your own business is like having a child. So my child divorced me <laughs> or ran away. My child ran away. That's, so those, these are hard things. Those are hard things. They are hard things. If you could go back in time and give, give counsel to your younger self, like what would you tell her? You know, there's so many things that the, the, the genesis of this whole podcast was like, there are things that I wish I knew at the beginning of my career. There are things that I wish I had learned earlier than I did. And maybe, you know, like I'm, I'm very happy with where I ended up and I believe that it's all, everyone has their path. But I'm like, if I were to meet my younger self, there are a few things I would say to yeah. him to encourage him on his way, maybe faster, maybe with less fear, maybe with less, you know, self-consciousness or whatever. Yeah. What, are, what are things that you might say I... to your younger self? I would have had a little less fun during some periods of my life that were distracting, I would say. I mean, working in the theater world and the the world I was in was super fun. It was super fun. But, you know, maybe 35% less fun, which should have translated into 35% more focus during... I'd say a very productive period, a work period. I also, because it's nothing to do with work really, but I wish I had kids way earlier. Because <laughs> they'd be in college now. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, that's how things, that's how some things work out. But I, 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 I feel like there was, I don't know how young people are right now. So maybe they all work incredibly hard right from the get go. And I did that. Like I, got right out of college and ended up producing this huge jazz festival. And like, I killed myself, like I killed it. And then I came to New York and like, it was sort of like, what the hell is going, this place is amazing, you know? And I let myself have this kind of incredibly uh, fertile, creative life, but it was definitely coupled with like lots of fun. And perhaps I could have balanced that out a little better, which may have moved my career further earlier is what I think it would be. So if I was telling myself, you know, 
that now, I'd be like, yeah, maybe, maybe like just stay home and put your nose to the grindstone a little bit. You know, I kind of let myself have like my early 20s in my late 20s or early 30s. I kind of, I, I reversed the order of maybe that, that time frame. So that was the way it worked out for me. It was great. I met so many artists and so many people I work with like you today. So, you know, you never know what the right road is. I'm really grateful that everything, even the failures, even the struggles, even the missteps, all led me to this moment. And, and I feel pretty good about where I'm at today. Okay. And maybe I wouldn't have gotten here had I yeah. done something different back yes, then. So yes. what I want to say to you is that everyone I know who knows you, <laughs> like, just is awed by what you've done and, and the types of, and how you work and your work ethic and your ability to synthesize creative considerations and production of production considerations. Because I think, that in a way, that's what, one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of realizing it and listening to you tell your story more and thinking about the things that I've known and things that I participated in and things that we did together, that part of what people have responded to in, in me and my work is, the, is that ability to have both sides of my brain active, to, to be creative but to also be a good producer, to understand the creative considerations and the abstraction and the contradictory nature of creative ideas sometimes, and how to make it work you know, as a production, how mm -hmm. to make a commercial thing, or how to make a creative idea commercially viable mm -hmm. and so forth. You know, you, you've done that to such a great mm -hmm. extent. And I think I think you're kind of you know you Annie people who've done what you've done fearlessly you know uh, are kind of a model too I think a lot of people so whatever you did whatever whatever fun <laughs> you had in your late 20s and early 30s I, I think it was well worth it if it ended up with you doing and being able to do what you do today. Follow Counts Projects on Facebook and Instagram, or check out Producing Innovation on Patreon where you can subscribe to join our community for production updates, behind the scenes access, creative meeting highlights, regular posts from me and the team, special offers, meetups and more. Please remember to rate, share, comment, and subscribe to Producing Innovation wherever you listen to your podcasts.